We're studying the book of Job, and one of the big themes from Job that we've lifted up every week is that suffering will happen to everyone, everyone in this room, everyone who's joining us online, anybody who ever has taken a breath will experience some form of suffering. It's just a universal. And in today's passage, we looked at three different chunks of Job, and what we're doing is we're seeing a turn. We're seeing a turn from the initial trauma, the loss, this unbelievable pain that Job's through. Now we're starting to see how he reacts to it and how the people around him react to it. So if you remember, Job has lost everything. The beginning of Job depicts a man who is successful and wealthy and has a lot of resources, and slowly, bit by bit, and rapidly at times, all of his being, his possessions, his, his very connections to the people around him has been wiped out. And if any one of us were to lose one of these things, it would be devastating. But Job has lost all of these things. He has lost his livelihood, his business, his means of making a, will, a living in this world. He's lost his home, the place where he could put his feet up and kind of be in a safe space. He has lost his children. His sons and daughters have been wiped out. And then finally, like we talked about last week, he has lost his health. He is afflicted with boils. He is in pain. His comfort is gone. And to this point, he's actually been remarkably faithful. Some would even say it's almost been like a superhuman experience for him to still hang in there and not cry out in anger toward God. And in this week's passage, that starts to shift a little bit. Chapter 2, his friends come to comfort him, which is a whole kind of wonderful example to us. In chapter 3, he finally starts to just let us into a little bit of what's been happening in his heart. And in chapter 4, his friend Eliphaz begins this series of dialogues between Job and his friends that are really instructive for how we handle suffering and really instructive for how other people handle it when we go through suffering. And this will be a little difficult at times, but I think I have confidence that we can kind of track with this. A lot of what today's message is going to be about is what happens when we observe suffering in others. And a lot of what today's message is going to be about is how other people react to us when we are suffering. So I want you to kind of picture scenarios of both instances in your life. Maybe you have been there when your roommate in college, their family lost everything, and that roommate was, you know, kind of forced to get a job and make money just to try to get through college. You walked with them through that tragedy, right? Through that difficulty. Flip it over. Maybe you've been through a great loss. Like, this church was so wonderful to me and my family when we were walking through the grief of losing my dad. And so I have been the recipient of care of people walking with me through my suffering and my affliction. We need to be able to picture ourselves in both chairs because, honestly, that'll happen throughout your life. If it hasn't happened yet, just wait. You will have the opportunity to comfort others, and you will have the opportunity to receive comfort. And what we'll see, I think, in today's text is how suffering, it it creates this conflict in us. It, It slows us down. It's like tar. It gets us sticky, and it kind of holds us in place, and it creates a discomfort in others that we're not responsible for as the people going through suffering, but we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to try to help. We have to try to step out in faith and enter into the suffering of others and help others as they wrestle with the suffering that they observe in us or in the world around us. So we're going to go through an outline that is pretty simple. We're going to talk about who is Eliphaz, this first friend of Job, 
We're going to talk about the good move that his friends make. It's far too easy to kind of paint his friends as like, oh man, these guys were morons and they didn't know what they were doing. They actually make a really good move right at the beginning. We're going to talk about how suffering confounds us, that stickiness, how it's like tar. And then we're going to talk about next steps. So who is Eliphaz, the good move that is made, how suffering confounds us, and next steps. So let's talk about who Eliphaz is. We're going to be in chapter 2 primarily for this one. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Job chapter 2. What do we know about Eliphaz? We know that he came from a land called uh, Taman, which some scholars believe is this land called Edom. You might remember Edom from some of your Old Testament studies. Edom is just south of the Dead Sea. Today it's kind of the border of Jordan and Israel. So that southern part of the Holy Land. We do know a couple of things about Job from the text. We know that he and his friends had been friends with Job for a long time. How do we know that? If you look at chapter 4, I'll just summarize this for us. There are two lines in particular where Eliphaz tells Job, I've seen you be a good comforter to others. You have given words to others that have strengthened them. If you say that to someone and you're making it up, that's really weird. (laughs) You wouldn't make up something like that. You would say that to someone that you've known a long time to bolster their confidence, to to give them a little boost in the midst of some suffering that they're going through. So based on chapter 4, we know that Eliphaz and the two other friends have been friends with Job for a long time. The Hebrew word friend that is used here, it doesn't just indicate like, oh, you know, this is my buddy and we go shoot basketball sometimes, like that kind of thing. This word for friend is someone who has an intimate relationship with you, that you would trust the advice that they give to you. You listen to them when they speak. When I think of people like that in my life, I think of long-tenured faithful friends. These other two friends and Eliphaz, they are also people who live far away from Job because the text tells us they travel. But here's something interesting about that. Traveling would not be simple in this day. This is during the time of the patriarchs. This is even before the time when the Roman Empire took over the Holy Land. So there are no roads, really, to speak of. There's certainly no protection for travelers. You would travel to go see friends or to go see family very rarely and at great cost, both financially and in terms of your risk and exposing yourself to danger. There's lawlessness at this time. Once you leave your family property, you're kind of in the Wild West. So these guys, when they go see Job, they do so at great expense to themselves. And the text tells us they went together. This is chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. They go together. There's a unity in their efforts. So think about this. The last time that you met up with some friends, how hard was it to coordinate plans, right? Like, Maybe you sent a text message out or you, you know, got in touch with them somehow and you said, okay, at five o'clock we're going to meet up here and we're going to have a meal together and it's going to be great. Still relatively easy, but most of the time when we try to do that in our family, something goes haywire, right? Like, oh, so-and-so, there was a COVID exposure. Okay, they're not going to make it. All right, such and such. Yeah, they got stuck in traffic. They weren't able to be there. There's always some kind of interruption to that. The point I'm making is even in today's time, it's difficult to coordinate plans, is it not? Think about how much more difficult it would have been in this time. There's no text messaging. There's no syncing up calendars. You would have had to have sent a messenger, a servant from your household to the other household to the other household, and heaven knows how long that would have taken. And if that person had been attacked by robbers, like, who knows, right? Somehow, these three men are able to sync up their calendars. They're able to get in touch with each other, one, about the reality of what's happening to Job, and two, the fact that they need to go and do something about it. They need to go be with him. This is not easy to do. 
And one of the things that holds us back in suffering is we look at the cost of having to comfort another person and we go, oh man, it's going to be a lot of work to get there. It's a lot of work to drive over to my friend's house. I'm a, you know, someone's going to have to watch the kids. And these are all fine and good kind of challenges to providing comfort to others. But I want to point to the example of the friends and say, you know, they didn't let that stop them. They were able to comfort and to be with others. They didn't tell themselves that they were too busy. They were loyal. They worked together. And when they arrive, they are utterly stunned by what they see. Now, I want to talk about the good move that is made. We're transitioning to kind of point two now. And I want to show a picture to y'all that I found this week that I was kind of struck by. So this is a painting called Job and His Friends. It's painted by Ilya Yefminovich Rapin. He was a painter who was actually a friend of Leo Tolstoy, the author. Like, they knew each other. He did portraits of Tolstoy. He was painting in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He depicted some amazing scenes from Russian history. So if you're at all a history buff, you've got to see some of his work. But this is one of his biblical scenes. And I know the color's a little bit off because I had to brighten it to show it on the screen. There's actually five figures depicted in this painting. You have Job right here who looks like Job. He looks like he's been put through the ringer. He doesn't have a stitch of clothing on him. He's got a sheet wrapped around him. He looks haggard. Right behind him, I believe, is Job's wife. And again, we, we touched on her role very briefly last week. We're not going to spend a lot of time with her, but it's remarkable, too, that she's depicted in this, right? Because this is a huge scene. And then over here are his three friends. Now, this scene is not depicting the moment in chapter 2 when all three of them arrive. I think it's depicting when they start to kind of want to engage with Job. But one of them continues to be in a position that I think we need to concentrate on. We'll get into what these two guys are doing in the weeks ahead. This guy, this friend, is making the good move. And if you can see, I know it's hard because it's further away, he's not even looking at Job. His eyes are cast toward the ground. His brow is furrowed. His shoulders are haunched. It's almost like, like a weight has been laid upon his shoulders. That's what I want to emphasize in showing us this painting. The man who is sitting on the ground is at eye level with Job. He's not above Job. He's not condescending down to Job. And he is simply sitting and listening and waiting for the opportunity to minister to his friend. That is the good move of the friends of Job. And it is a hard move for loquacious Americans to make. If you have friends or family members who are from other countries, one of the things they'll tell you if they're honest is like, man, Americans, people in the West, we talk a lot. Like we're very verbal people. Compared to Eastern cultures, more traditional cultures, we are very verbal people. And so for this, this expression of ancient Near Eastern grief to really resonate with us, think about how hard it would be to sit with someone that you love, sit with a friend and not talk to them. Not say a word. Maybe you're sitting around a fireplace together and there's, there's no need to converse. You're just, you're so grateful. Those are sweet moments, right? But they don't happen that often. At least they don't happen that way for me. Grief and suffering are not necessarily things that our words will allow us to have a better understanding of. Grief and suffering are things 
things that we can enter into and we can say, you know what, I'm comfortable with the fact that we're just being silent right now. I had some friends who called me up after my dad passed away and they just said, hey, look, like, I want to meet you for coffee, I want to meet you for a beer, whatever. And we just want to sit. And it was a gift. It was an incredible gift just to have people sit with me and talk when we wanted to talk and pray when we wanted to pray. Part of my training as a pastor was to work in settings like hospitals and hospice centers and places where there's a lot of pain and suffering and learn how to just sit with someone and not have to say anything. And I wouldn't say I'm especially gifted at that. I just learned by sitting with people in pain that sometimes the best thing you can offer them is your silence. Sometimes the best thing you can offer them is just like, hey, I see you. I'm sorry for what you're going through. The wisest people I know who have been through the most suffering are the ones that when I sit with them in my own suffering, I just feel ministered to. I believe it's one of those powerful things that the Holy Spirit can do. One of the powers of the Holy Spirit that we don't pass over very much is this ability to say, you don't have to say anything, but you are a comfort to your friend right now. You don't have to say anything if you are the person suffering, but you can just receive this comfort from someone who loves you, from someone who cares about you. Hard for us to do, but modeled so well for us by Job's friends. So that's the good move. This is the good part of the story, where Job's friends are doing the good work that God has called them to do. They're comforting him. And that can't last forever. So what happens in chapter 3? Chapter 3 is when Job finally gives his friends a little bit of material to work with. They sit with him in silence for seven days. Imagine that. Sitting around with a group of people, some friends maybe you haven't seen for a while, and you're so stunned by the grief that this friend is going through. You just don't talk for seven days. And then in chapter 3, Job starts to kind of pour out what's been in his heart, what's kind of been festering within him. And it's bitter. It's dark. It's hard. Job says things like, let the day of my birth be cursed. I wish I'd never been born because of all this trouble that I've seen. He links the two together. He's not just lamenting the fact that he's sitting in the dirt in ashes. He's saying, all this suffering that's happened to me makes me wish I'd never been born. And his friends seize on that. And for the next few weeks, we're going to look at how they grab a hold of his complaints and what they do with it. But for this week, we're just going to look at what Eliphaz says to him. Eliphaz is the first friend that starts talking to him. And if you read Eliphaz's speech, it's chapters 4 and 5, he's very confused by what's happening in front of him. And one of the commentators I read this week shed some light on this, and the phrase that this commentator used is temporal retribution. Temporal retribution. Now, that's kind of a fancy-pants theological word. Replace that word with karma. What Eliphaz is bringing is a shock and a dismay that his friend Job is suffering seemingly for no reason. We talked about this last week when we talked about the burden of religion. Remember the three burdens that Job is dealing with here. In Eliphaz's viewpoint, what Job is going through makes no sense because Job is a good man. Job is an innocent man. Why would bad things happen to a good and innocent person? It breaks his systems. He, he basically admits as much in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. You can look at this with me if you like. Eliphaz said to Job, stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? These are rhetorical questions. He's saying, no, 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 these things aren't true. My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. 
You reap what you sow, Job. Clearly, you've done something wrong. His wife said the exact same thing to him last week. And what does Job say to them? He says, that's a bunch of hooey. I know I'm innocent. I know I have not done anything to deserve this. But this belief system, this temporal retribution, this karma, is falling apart in the same way that it does today in the face of reality. The biggest problem I have with karma is reality. Reality does not support that. My dad got sick three years ago. He was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's Burkett's lymphoma, which is a rare form of lymphatic cancer. It attacks the lymph nodes. It's actually more common in children than it is in adults. And when he started to suffer those symptoms, we took him to MD Anderson Cancer Center. He started to receive treatment. Nobody along the way asked us, like, now what kind of sins did your dad commit to have created this cancer, right? Because that would just be appalling and shocking. And yet, people operate that way. Why do you think he got sick? How do you think this happened? I don't know. He didn't drink. He didn't drink a lot, didn't smoke. He didn't cheat people out of their money. But he got sick, and he passed away. And karma doesn't work in the face of reality. Temporal retribution doesn't work in the face of reality. It can't. It's not possible. But our world very much believes in that. <laughs> I have a friend who's a pastor, and he got into a car accident recently, not his fault, uh, driving through an intersection. Someone kind of sideswiped him. He was fine. His family was fine. And they get out of the car, and they're all standing around. This is over in Seattle. And my friend's standing there talking to the guy in the other car, making sure everybody's okay. And the other guy says, you know, hey, let me get your contact info, all that. What do you do for a living? And my friend says, oh, I'm a pastor. And the guy laughed. And he said, I didn't know things like this happened to pastors. People believe this stuff, guys. They do. And we are called to enter into that graciously, kindly, not condescendingly, but recognizing that our world has tremendous challenges to the gospel, including the nonsense that is karma. And that's exactly what Eliphaz believes in this moment. And suffering breaks his beliefs. Suffering breaks his beliefs. Job actually calls him out on this a little bit later. So Eliphaz talks through most of chapter 4 and chapter 5, and then Job responds to Eliphaz in chapter 6. He says this, You too have given no help. Thanks a lot for your empty words, Eliphaz. You have seen my calamity, and you are, say it with me, church, afraid. You're afraid. Suffering produces fear in others. When you and I go through suffering, it creates fear in others. What is that fear? This could happen to me. It could happen to me. Your friend gets in a car accident. Oof, that could happen to me. My dad gets sick. Oof, that could happen to me. You lose a child. You lose a pregnancy. You've experienced this, church. I know you have. When you go through suffering, sometimes people move toward you, and it's beautiful. Again, I experienced this when my dad died, and we were so thankful to be a part of this wonderful church that people wrapped their arms around us and loved us and carried us through it. But there are also people, when you go through suffering, who just do this. No thank you. No thank you. Because they're afraid. 
that it could happen to them. They're afraid that they'll say the wrong thing. Oh, if I could take one fear of the east side and of our church and just smash it to bits, it's this fear of saying the wrong thing. Oh my goodness. It's a terrible excuse for not doing ministry and not being with people in a way that they desperately need it. And I get that fear. I talk for a living. Believe me. But let us not be handcuffed to our fears when we see suffering. Job's friends, they made some mistakes, but you know what they did? They went and they sat with him. And even though the suffering that they observed in Job, it was breaking all of their boxes, like this shouldn't happen to you, and Job, you're a good man. If this kind of thing can happen to a good man, then it can happen to anybody, and that freaks me out, and I don't want that. where we have to confront the suffering of others like Job's friends, or we will be in suffering and we will have friends surround us who try to tell us like, hey, chin up, man. It'll be okay. Pull yourself up. It'll be all right. And all that person is trying to do is just deal with their own discomfort. That's just what human beings do. It just is. But followers of Jesus Christ are called to do better. We must. There's too much suffering in our world to just get all uncomfortable with it and avoid it. And I believe every one of us does have the ability to enter into suffering in our own way, with our own voice. And so maybe, and this is where we turn to next steps, maybe all you need to do to enter into the suffering of another is just to acknowledge it. Maybe you've got somebody that you've been thinking of or you're going like, man, my friend is really going through a hard time and I haven't reached out to them. A text message solves that pretty quick. Just texting someone and saying, I'm thinking of you. I'm sorry for what you're going through. People did that for me when my dad was sick and when he passed, and it was a real gift. You don't have to fully understand suffering to enter into the suffering of others. But acknowledging it, honoring it, is an important step. That's the first thing we'll talk about as a next step. When you honor the suffering of others, you see them and you show them that you recognize them as a human being. I love how Job's friends just surround him and say, we're just gonna sit with you because it honors him as a person. It honors his humanity. Have you ever had someone just avoid you when you're in the midst of suffering or avoid talking about your suffering? It's so awkward and it's painful because it dismisses the reality of what you're going through. Job's friends, they get through the shock of seeing him and they respond by just sitting with him. We can do the same. So if you have someone in your life who's going through suffering and you haven't moved toward them, maybe it's time to do that. It could be as easy as a text or a phone call. It could literally be going to sit with them and just say, look, I'm here. And you cry with them or you pray with them or you don't say anything, and you're just with them and you're for them. The reason Christians are called to move towards suffering as best we're able is because Jesus did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew the suffering that was before him. He had talked about it. He had told his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer and die. He knew it. And he still went to the garden, and he still sat in that pain, and he was still arrested, And he still got put on show trial because he knew that the suffering that he would endure would be the freedom of the whole world. So because our Lord did it, we can do it. We must do it. My encouragement would be 
seek opportunities to honor the suffering of others, just keep it really simple. Keep it really simple. I'm with you. I'm sorry for what you're going through. That's it. You don't have to explain it. Explaining it makes it worse. Just showing up and saying that you're there and you're listening is powerful. When it's time to talk, talk, that's the second thing. When it's time, Job's friends don't immediately start barraging him with words. They wait until he talks. I would offer that encouragement to all of us. When you are experiencing suffering and you don't feel like it's time for you to talk yet, it's probably not time for you to talk yet. And when others in your life go through suffering and you're kind of going, are they ready to talk? I don't really know. Be patient. Be patient. They'll probably let you know when they're ready to talk. It honors their timeline to not impress upon them the urgency that you feel to kind of talk to them and get it over with. And if you're really not sure if it's time to talk to someone about a suffering that they went through in their past and you've just been concerned about it, or you know, it's just been a long time since I've talked to this person, I don't know if it's time for me to talk to them about what I know they're going through, pray. Ask the Lord to shine light on that desire for you. Ask him to illuminate his purposes there. He will. The final encouragement I would offer is this, to pray and lament. If you're called upon to go sit with someone in suffering, or if you need someone to sit with you in the midst of your suffering, it can just be as simple as praying and lamenting. And we've been learning the discipline of lament from our Ministry of Racial Justice team. We've been trying to learn how to do this. And in this instance, here, in this situation, all I'm talking about is sitting with someone who's been through suffering and just saying, look, I'm sorry. This isn't right. After my dad died, I uh, took some time off, and then that fall, I went down to uh, go visit one of my oldest friends. He lives in Gig Harbor, where my wife grew up, and I, I hadn't seen him, and he knew my dad. We'd spent tons of time together, and we just hadn't talked. So I went down, sat on his back porch, got a nice little fire pit. It was kind of chilly out. There were chips and salsa, which always makes me feel better. And we just hung out. And at one point, my friend said to me, hey, look, I'm, I'm really glad you're here. I'm sorry I haven't called you. I didn't know what to say. And I said, that's okay. We're here now. And this was so wonderful. Then we didn't talk for like 10 minutes. We just sat there under the stars, sitting around the fire pit, ate some chips and salsa, didn't have to talk. But I will tell you that that was a powerful moment for me as I walked through that early stages of grief after losing my dad, just to sit on my friend's back porch around the fire pit with chips and salsa and not talk. It was just a gift. And I know what my friend was doing in that moment. He was lamenting with me this loss. And he wasn't trying to find the right words. He was just reflecting on what it would be like for him to lose his dad and reflecting on the time that he had spent with my dad. And it was a beautiful thing. And I offer that as an encouragement. If you feel the opportunity to minister to someone in that way or if you need that kind of ministry, know that it is so powerful just to sit with someone and pray. And my friend and I did pray later on. And know that it is just so powerful to have someone sit with you and acknowledge your grief and acknowledge what you're going through and just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
And you can lament in the silence, and you can lament using your words, and you can lament in so many other ways. But just know that that is a powerful tool that God offers to us. I'll offer these words in closing from uh, Tim Keller. Job's friends talk endlessly about God without ever speaking directly to God on their friend's behalf. They don't pray for Job. They don't intercede on Job's behalf. And we should when we are with people in suffering. And then Keller says this, they're not reading the room, so to speak. Job doesn't need a sermon. He needs a friend. to comfort someone and you have given a sermon, be forgiven through Jesus Christ. You are doing your best. Know that what God is calling all of us to do is to simply be a friend to others who are in pain and to receive that friendship from others when we're in our pain. So we're going to turn our attention now to a time of discussion, and I know that these are sacred moments, and I want to honor that, and I want to just say, with these discussion questions, as you are comfortable and willing and able to talk about suffering, I know it's heavy. I would encourage you to do so. If you want to just listen and say, you know what, I'm kind of in the middle of all this. I just want to listen and process what's happening in front of me. That's fine too. The first question is always is a warm-up. The second is a little bit deeper. The warm-up question is, please introduce yourself and share how much a gallon of gas costs when you were first learning how to drive, because that'll be fun. It was 79 cents a gallon when I was first learning how to drive. Think back to a time when someone close to you experienced suffering. How did you respond to their suffering? What was difficult for you? Or what seemed to come naturally in your response? Some people are really, really good at just observing the suffering of others and entering into it with just a light and gracious touch. If you're able to do that, let that experience be an encouragement to others. So turn in your chairs. We've got about 10 minutes to talk to one another. I'll call us back together. Let's have this discussion. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this time. We pray that you bless our discussion in person and online. And thank you for being with us and for us. We ask in your name.